This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast with me, Mandy Bell, Guardian's beat reporter for MLB.com. And Sarah Langs, researcher and reporter for MLB.com as well. Um, I really don't know how to even start us into these topics other than just saying it's been a rough week for Cleveland and really a rough two weeks for fans in general. And the, the moves that they made at the trade deadline started to catch more national attention because people just quickly looked at the standings and yes you and i have talked a lot about how awful the al central is this year um even still cleveland was a half game out of the al central when they decided to trade ahmed rosario to the dodgers and so um then they went on to trade aaron savali and then josh bell and it started to catch more national attention for once it was weird where more eyes are looking at Cleveland like, what is the goal here? You guys are still in the division. How is this working? Um, so that was hard enough. And you could tell that Tito was wearing it. Um, the front office wasn't in Houston over the trade deadline, so he was in charge of delivering all of this news in person by himself to each player. And you could tell he was more emotional. And so then, after all of that, the clubhouse seems exhausted, emotionally drained from watching guys like Savali and Bell get moved at the last minute. Prominent guys in that clubhouse, whether or not, I know Bell hadn't been the best on the field, but these guys were prominent in the clubhouse. And then they had the wind taken out of their sails just within five hours of the trade deadline expiring. And... Uh, Frommer Valdez throws a no-hitter for the Astros against the Cleveland lineup. And I'm telling you, Sarah, there's... I've never walked into a room that felt more like a funeral without being at a funeral than going into the clubhouse post-game for that because it was so much. And of course, being in Houston, it was cool to take that in. It was cool to see fans living and dying on every pitch the excitement in there and with the roof being closed it even made it sort of more exciting because you could hear the fans it all the noise was enclosed into that one space and it was exhilarating it was cool but then you go from that environment to the clubhouse and it's just like oh my this is a lifeless room right now and so it's it's been a heck of a time for the guardians recently It has been, but you know, you and I have talked so much about how much we love no-hitters. We have talked about how much you, when you and I were first working on having our own podcast, we recorded a demo in 2020, and one of our topics was no-hitters and how, you know, everybody appreciates the history, but it's no secret, um, at least within the working ranks, that there are some people who work in baseball, you know, like on uh, the editorial side, whatever, whatever it may be, who are very keenly aware of the fact that if there is a no-hitter, there's a lot more work for them to do. Oh, 99% of people in this world are like, please, no, no, no hitters. And I'm like, I'm bring it to on. I'm nice <laughs> about it. But yes, you and I are not like that. You and I are always <laughs> hoping that the history happens. So when we talked about this in 2020, we talked about how you enter every game you cover 
hoping both sides do it, you know, hoping that someone is helpless because you had never been to a no-hitter, never covered a no-hitter. Since then, since that day in 2020 where we first talked about it on a podcast, you covered four no-hitters and a notable achievement, which was back in the day with those uh, seven-inning double-headers if you went hitless in that. Not an official no-hitter because a no-hitter has to be nine innings, but still nobody got a hit. Now the thing that we need you to do next is cover the winning team because unfortunately for Cleveland fans, those have all been instances of the Guardians being held headless, which is quite the stretch. But I want you to be able to go into a clubhouse sometime soon and say, hey, how was it making the play? Hey, how did you feel in your bullpen before the game? Did you have any idea? Hey, what's it like to be the catcher catching this? And I know you will get to ask those questions one day. Tristan McKenzie, I'm looking at you when you're healthy, maybe. Who knows? We'll see. Or Gavin Williams, the way you looked last time. But it is amazing that since we first talked about this, you now cover basically five of these. And there's two layers of irony here because one, someone who actually wants to cover a no-hitter is covering the team with the longest drought of having a no-hitter in Uh baseball. The second layer is that Cleveland is known for its pitching development and its constant excellent pitching staff. No matter what, they find a way, whether they look externally or they are drafting these guys, they are always known to have excellent pitchers and they still are the team that has the longest drought without a no-hitter. Um, you think back to Len Barker's perfect game, and that's just it. It was in the early 80s, and now we're sitting here in 2023, and I'm like, am I ever going to get my chance at covering a winning one? We'll see. We'll see. But, I mean, I, I think the Guardians were definitely a little defeated going into that game. Um, one of our bosses uh, it ended up, messaging our Astros writer before the game saying I feel like Fromber's gonna have a no-hitter tonight and oh it was my gosh. really impressive because he definitely called a shot there and um and then that sort of transpired and I know the our research team is always on call for whenever these things happen you guys have to update so many different stories historical things and then you like to put out stories that are all the facts of those types of Um, events was there anything that stood out to you that was fun or interesting or a little nugget that you liked about Fromber's no-hitter oh my gosh there were a few things I loved it first of all it was the 16th no-hitter for the Astros if we include the post of them they came into existence in 1962 through their first in 63 no other team has thrown that many no-hitters in that span. So they don't have the most in baseball history. That's the Dodgers. They don't have the most among current American League teams or what have you. But they have the most in their collective lifetime by, I believe, three. The Dodgers are second with 13. So that was really cool to look into. I mean, think about in the last year, they had the combo at Yankee Stadium, sorry about Javier. And they had the uh, combo in the World Series, which I got to be at, which was amazing. And another really fun thing is, as you mentioned, this was the trade deadline. Fromber's no-hitter was their first one by an individual pitcher. Since Justin Berlin on September 1st, 2019. So you get him back and then you do the thing he did for you. You know, it's just funny uh, in that way. And then two other things. Martin Maldonado has now caught three. And as he pointed out after the game, 
This was the first he's caught that was an individual pitcher. He caught the combo in Yankee Stadium, I believe, and then a combo in 2019, maybe. Um, so he's now caught three. Only two catchers have caught more. No hitters with four. It's Carlos Ruiz and Jason Miratek. And a very cool thing, I mean, again, to the point that notable achievements don't count. And obviously, we talk about this, this is an MLB no-hitters. But when he was on Team Puerto Rico, remember how they threw the eight-inning perfect game against Israel, sorry, Alana, <laughs> in the WBC? So he caught that, too, which is just incredible just to think about. Um, you know, all of these times that he has been behind the plate in those situations, and he has such a great reputation, and we know why, and so much of it is just making pitchers feel calm, which has been a really key thing for Romber Valdez, and he is incredible at this point. That was great to see, and then there's always a Dusty Baker angle. That was the fifth no-hitter that he has managed, if we include the postseason. I have the list here. So only three managers have managed more no-hitters. Walter Alston was seven. Uh, thanks to, <laughs> in large part to Sandy Koufax. AJ Hinch, who actually got his sixth with that uh, Tigers combo earlier this year. And then the great John McGraw was six, so it makes total sense. Dusty would be on a list like this, but it's really cool to see. So I loved it from all of those angles. And then we'll say, I forgot to mention this to you, but right when it ended, Do, Do Young Park, who covers the twins for us and is one of our friends, slapped me and said, I'm so happy for Mandy. And I just responded <laughs> in all caps. And I was like, me too. So that was great. Look at the support from my crew here. Of I love course. it. My favorite thing about Sarah Langs here is the fact that we didn't necessarily know that we would talk about the no hitter until about, okay, we've been about 10 12 minutes into our podcast here so about 13 minutes ago we realized that we wanted to talk about the no hitter first um and then i threw at sarah to list off any of her favorite stats from that and you heard the point in when she was talking that she actually had to go back and look at something and that was at the very end when she was talking about the list that dusty baker joined and everything else was just rattling off the top of her head. We are recording one week since the no-hitter, so I'm sure <laughs> your brain has been filled with a ridiculous number of stats since then, and yet your encyclopedic baseball mind has stored all of these things into little files that you so effortlessly go and open and read off of. I don't know how you do it, so that was very entertaining for me to just watch you just list off all of these stats that wasn't like it was just one so anyway just so everyone understands Thank you. sure i appreciate that <laughs> but i wanted to at least just say that but cleveland's awful week sort of continued <sighs> because mm -hmm. they got back home and the first night after their road trip to houston which was their trade deadline trip they come back home play friday at progressive field against the white Sox. And Tito gets ejected for the second time in a week against the White Sox. They had played the White Sox before they went to Houston in Chicago. And he's ejected because uh, Brian Rocchio, their rookie middle infielder, and I guess also third baseman, infielder, um, slid into second base. Tim Anderson, the shortstop for the White Sox, applied quite a hard tag and kept sort of pushing um, at second base, and the Guardians had argued that he was knocked off the base, and he was tagged out. His hand was knocked off. On the field, he was ruled safe. Replay review then overturned that call. Guardians argued that you needed to call something like that on the field. If you were going to say, look, he pushed his hand off the, off the base, 
that can't then go be overturned. They were arguing all of this stuff. Okay, Tito's very upset. My goodness, if you didn't see it, go back, watch it. You can tell he is very upset. Um, and so that started a lot of stuff. Fast, fast forward to the next day. Um, and the Guardians sort of heard more from Anderson. Apparently he had been chirping in his dugout. Um, over at the first baseman, Gabriel Arias, and just yelling stuff the whole game. So much so that the umpire had to pause the action for a second and tell him to knock it off because it was getting too over the line. Which I don't see that very often, where an umpire has to intervene of just casual trash talk, whatever it might be. Jose Ramirez had been making comments to him saying, look, let's play fair. This isn't cool. Um, you did that to a rookie yesterday. We don't need any of that. Let's just play fine. And when Jose Ramirez dove into second base, Tim Anderson, uh, stra he straddled him on the tag and kept his tag on him a little bit longer, trying to probably make his own point. Jose started yelling at him while he was still laying in between his straddled legs and saying, all right, come on, let's go. And from Jose Ramirez's perspective, because that's the only perspective that I was able to get um, post-game, because that's the clubhouse I'm in, he said that Anderson just immediately went to, let's fight. And Jose said, okay, in self-defense, I'm like, all right, let's fight. And I have never seen anything like this in my time covering baseball, where it's actually in front of me, I'm in the press box, I've never seen a fielder just drop his glove and square up like the way that Anderson did. And they're both putting their fists in front of their face and sort of just bouncing around like boxers waiting for the round to start and just waiting for their best angle to get a punch in. And I was like, wait, hold up. Like, I've seen brawls where guys get mad and they come up from whatever the play was and they're starting to push each other immediately and arms start flying right away. But this one was like toe-to-toe, -to -toe, waiting for the best angle to truly lay a punch. And it just showed how much has been bubbling up between these two teams. Jose Ramirez is never one to get rattled. He has never been ejected before this game. Um, he never even argues with umpires ever. Like, he is so even-keeled. So that said a lot. And then... It continued. There was more rounds. After that, they broke them off. And everyone sort of split up. And then the two managers started going at each other, yelling. And that got split up. And then of all people, the most mild-mannered person I've ever met in my life, third base coach Mike Sarbaugh for the Guardians, is in the middle of just an entire chicago white Sox c he's the only red jersey against like the entire roster it looked like and something must have been said to set him off and he's in the middle of it all and i've i truly just have never seen anything like that before i was so interested to hear your take from the press box because we know how this goes people make light of it on social media things go viral Tom Hamilton had a memorable call that certainly people are repeating, but nobody wants this for a game. Nobody wants baseball to be about this, even if it is a viral moment. So, I mean, I think it's just a reminder of how long this season is, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but there are so many things going on, both that you see and that you kind of don't see. So. The fact that something bubbles over from a prior game, all of that, it just shows how much goes into this day in, day out. You know, I was watching the White Sox broadcast, and they were pointing out the fact that Tito, as you said, was ejected in back-to-back -back games, and they found the last manager to get ejected in three straight games in the series as if they were almost begging him to do it the next day, which of course he didn't. And I can't remember. It was someone like a Frankie Frisch. It was someone way back when they found an old newspaper headline. So I will say there is always a research angle. <laughs> and it certainly gets people talking, but 
you know, I just hope that, uh, that it all gets sorted out, that the emotions get sorted out. But I do think one way to take it is how much these guys care, you know, how much they care about how they play, how it is perceived, and how others play around them. And I think that is an important part of the game. And it was also just more in, like, protection of their teammates for the Guardians' mm-hmm. perspective. Jose Ramirez was really trying to protect um, Brian Rocchio from the night before, especially because he's a rookie. He has a handful of games in the big leagues, and he doesn't want him to be gypped in trying to prove that he could be a middle infielder for this team next year. And he's thrown, off, thrown out at second base for something that they believed was not his fault. Uh, then Gabriel Arias was dealing with a lot over at first base, hearing the constant screams from the dugout and Ramirez just wanted to protect his guys. And so I think there's a lot of that from it too. Um, but it is, it is interesting. And the biggest concern you have is watching these guys and you just don't want anyone to get hurt. Um, and so you're seeing Tristan McKenzie and Josh Naylor who are both on the IL and Josh Naylor is holding back Emmanuel Classe, and it's like, okay, well, this guy has an oblique strain right now, so let's make sure he's fine. Tristan McKenzie's working his way back and is finally throwing from all of his uh, elbow troubles. You don't want him to tear something more out there whenever he's trying to hold anyone back. Let me, I will say, it's crazy to cover. You have to try to get both sides of this. You have to try to understand like the umpire's perspective, the t- both teams' perspectives, the individual players' perspectives, and you're trying to put this all together. Um, but then I think my favorite part of that day is Tristan McKenzie just knowing how and when to bring comedic relief, to try to relieve tensions, to try to bring everyone's blood pressure back down. He's unbelievable at it at all times. He is the most even-keeled. I know I said that about Jose, but Tristan truly is the most relaxed, nonchalant person. And I've talked about how genuine he is with with kids and the community and all this stuff. So as everything finally died down, it took 14 minutes for them to get back to play. Um... But in those final moments when the umpires are trying to just get everything back on course, Jose went back out to second base, was waiting to find out if he had been ejected. Nobody else is on the field. Everyone else is in the dugouts except for the umpires by home plate. And Jose's just a lone man standing out at second base with his hands on his hips. And out comes Tristan McKenzie from the dugout with a bottled water, like coming out to to a boxer in a boxing ring in his brief little seconds in the corner trying to get him back up and re- uh, refueled and Tristan runs out of bottled water to second base and even Jose in that heat of the moment couldn't help but crack a smile whenever Tristan got out there and Tristan undid the cap for him so it was ready he handed it to him Jose took a couple sips and he gave it back to Tristan Tristan came running back into the dugout so um it was nice to see that even in the heat of the moment when all of those emotions are flaring, that they were able to just settle it back down, realize probably in that moment that it shouldn't have escalated to that level um, and buttons were just pushed at the wrong time. But I thought that was really, really fun and it was a good thing for the game to also see that this isn't just going down a bad path right now. We can still have fun. This is still baseball. As Sarah's saying is baseball still the best. It's all great. Everything's wonderful. And I, I and I liked how that was the neat little bow that put on that entire brawl. That's so perfect. And from everything you told me, everything I see with him, that's so him. So, <laughs> you know, again, even in a moment that isn't a great moment for the game, you still have like these are who these guys are at heart. Okay, we'll take a break now from all of this really rough week for Cleveland. And we haven't even gotten to Shohei Otani yet, which is a record on this podcast (laughs) for the last few weeks because he's been our number one topic every week. But don't worry, he's still something to be talked about. So when we come back, we'll get into all things Shohei. (laughs) 
It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Welcome back to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm Mandy, that's Sarah, and we have more Shohei Otani to get into because what day does he not do something for us to talk about? And so, I mean, I start a lot of my days by just going to MLB.com in general just to see the headlines from the night before, figure out what the biggest storylines were because we've talked about it before. When you're fixated on one team, covering one team, it's so difficult to then peel back and keep track of all the 29 others while you're really invested in covering one. So I like to just peek around, see who did what, who's getting the attention. And what do you know? The first thing on our homepage is always, I'm telling you, it is always Shohei Otani, and it should be. And this one is tracking Otani's Triple Crown's chances. And my gosh, could you just, I still, it sounds like, broken record it sounds like we just beat a dead horse but i truly can't wrap my brain around what he's doing i mean the fact that we're doing triple crown chase and i have to for a moment think okay are we saying pitching or hitting triple crown? true <laughs> the fact that we have to think about he is in the running hitting triple crown he probably won't get there for a pitching one but he is going to finish like off the top of my head he is going to finish top five in the majors in OPS home runs maybe RBIs what have you and strikeouts opponent batting average strikeout rate I mean None of this makes any sense. I didn't know last year he was the first guy to finish top 15 in um, home runs and strikeouts in a season. So home runs hit and uh, strikeouts throw. And now he's going to finish top five in both. So it just doesn't make any sense. And last night he got his 15th stolen base. He became the third fastest by player games, so games played in a season, to reach 40 home runs and 15 uh, stolen bases, doing so in his 112th game. If you do by team games, he was fastest, but personally, I don't want to fault Christian Yelich or Ken Griffey Jr. or ahead of him on the list for missing a few games since they didn't quicker in terms of actual playing time, but he is incredible, and unfortunately, the Angels lost again. Carlos Aceves, I always think of the Charlie Sheen reference, so I had to pause for a second. Carlos Aceves will say if they gave up a handful of runs in the top of the ninth, I'm staring at the uh, win probability. <laughs> which I had up last night, and I am a serial uh, non-closer of windows, so of course I still have it up from last night. And unfortunately, yet again, Otani just playing incredible, and the Angels don't win the game. But I know people are negative about the Angels, I know that nobody wants to see the most incredible player we've ever seen on the sidelines in October as opposed to playing. But I think the Angels and Perry Manassian deserve a lot of credit for doing what they were supposed to do. They went all in. They got a starting pitcher. And Lucas Giolito, one of the top pitchers who was traded. They got a reliever in Reynaldo Lopez. 
They got two position players in C.J. Crone and Randall Gretchen. And they haven't won a game since the deadline. It seems unfair by the baseball gods. Not to say that, you know, they lost those games fair and square, but I am so sad to see the team goes all in, does what they're supposed to do, and it doesn't work out because the narrative gets so toxic, but I really do want to point out they did it right. They're just, unfortunately, I guess with those players, still not quite good enough. It's like there's just some bad omen over this team. I'm telling you, like, what are the odds of that happening right at that time of coming out of the trade deadline and having yet to win a game as we speak of this in the afternoon of August 8th? I mean, to go to go and have a seven game losing streak to lose every single game after making those moves, it's not even something that (laughs) the odds are so stacked against that. Even if, I don't know, it just seems like it's, whether it's a team that's expected to suddenly be better or not, it just doesn't seem like that's probable to happen. And so for a team that was trying so hard to make the moves necessary, to build around the last little bit that they have left with Shohei Otani, and this is what their reward is, it is, that's gut-wrenching. And I cannot imagine what it feels like to be in that front office. It has to be so infuriating, um, disappointing, every adjective that you can imagine, because now suddenly you're looking at the ALOS standings and they're in 11 and a half games out. And that's just, oh, that's just painful. And it's even more painful as a generic baseball fan when you want the best players in the game to be on a stage that they deserve to be on. Um, we've all felt that way about Mike Trout for so long with that team. Then you pair it with Shohei Otani, who's even larger than Mike Trout, which we never thought imaginable a couple years ago. Um, and now it's just like something, someone out there, some baseball god out there has it against the Angels for right now. Um, and it's tough. It's tough for Otani. I know that there's been so many videos I've seen on Twitter of just watching Shohei's face in the dugout whenever these games are going in the direction that they're going. And it's just, it's tough as a generic baseball fan of everything and you want the storylines to be there. I think that's one of the most brutal to overcome. And it's cool because you want to sit there and look at how neat it is for Lucas Giolito to be on this team. We get a research packet sent to us by the wonderful people at MLB Network every single day that we can read through, get little tidbits, all those things. Well, as soon as you get to the Angels game for this evening, like I said, it's on August 8th. It's when the Angels are playing the Giants. And the first little nugget that is on there is saying that Lucas Giolito makes his Angels home debut tonight. As an eight-year-old growing up in Santa Monica, he attended the 2002 World Series between the Giants and the Angels. 21 years later, he faces the Giants in an Angels uniform in Anaheim. And it's just like... I have chills. You're reading that and I just got chills. Like, don't you want to sit there and root for that? Because it's just like, those moments are what makes baseball the best. And it's so cool to see and hear those types of things. And now, instead of being able to enjoy that, there's this big, black, dark cloud that everyone's like, okay, cool, but, and you just don't want that but to be there. But it's there because it's hard to ignore. And this is a team that they tried so hard to go all in. This is the picture that they wanted to sort of lead them to this. And now we can't even celebrate something that will be so cool for him personally because his first start with them didn't go great. This team in general is not going great. And now here we are. So yeah, it's, I think that's not, it's not anything that the baseball world would have wanted to see after all the moves they tried to make. Absolutely. And I do want to say there's another team in that division that's starting to make a bit of a push. This is when they made that push last season, the Mariners. When they finally broke that playoff drought, it was really a second-half team team 
they really came alive. I know that a lot of people saw them trade Paul Seawald at the deadline and wondered, okay, are they out? What are they doing here? But to their credit, the bullpen, they pieced it together. I know uh, Taylor Saucedo had a save the other night. They've been making it work. Julio has been playing really well. And here they are with, as of our recording, 27% chance to make the playoffs. That is the highest it's been for them since May 28th when they had a 29% chance. They're really starting to put it together. Obviously, this is a direct Angels conversation because they swept them over the weekend, which helps solidify this uh, upward trend that they're on. But if you look at the uh, AL ball curve race right now, and you look at the playoff odds for those teams, you have the Blue Jays. You have the Rays, and then if you look at these American League teams, we have the Rays, we have the Astros, we have the Blue Jays, and then the Mariners are that next team out. They are, as of when we're recording, three games behind, not insurmountable. They seem to have separated themselves from the Red Sox and the Yankees. The Red Sox are getting Trevor Story back, I believe, today. Maybe that will change things for them. But overall, I think we could see another second half push from the Mariners. I remember being at opening day, the opening series of this year, Guardians Open there. And I remember the Guardians playing well against this team, and we couldn't believe it because the the narrative was the Mariners are going to be really good this year, and this is how they're starting. And so um, it took a little bit, but I think this is the team we all imagined in the first month of the season. So it'll be interesting to see if this race gets a little bit tighter, if they can make it a little bit tighter in the AL West because we're so used to the AL West never really being that close. So this is kind of fun to have multiple teams being into it. And I want to give a shout-out to Julio, as I often want to, but on the same day that you covered that fight between the White Sox and the Guardians, there were a handful of um, individuals in baseball who were getting a bit heated over various things, so much so that my mother texted me, is it a full moon, which I enjoyed. (laughs) But one of those was Julio in the first inning. He was on first base. He stole second. He had it easy. The stolen base was called back because of interference. The catcher knocked into the umpire. And then a couple pitches later, he stole again, and he was out. And he was angry. He was angry after the interference call because my guess is... um. He figured he had it even without the bad throw, so he should have been given the base anyway. That I'm guessing that was his thought. And then, of course, to be gotten trying to steal a couple pitches later is like adding insult to injury type of thing. He was heated. Hmm. And Eugenio Suarez was helping him calm down in the dugout. He was very, very angry. You know what he did? He went three for four and a key RBI double, and he let his game do the talking. And I was so glad to see that to the point where by the end of the game, it wasn't, hey, Julio, why were you so mad in the first inning? It was, hey, Julio, how big of a win was this for you guys? And I love when a player is able to change the narrative and take control of his emotions in that way and channel it into having a really good game within the context and within the confines of a few hours, right? He was able to rein that in so quickly. So I really enjoyed seeing that. I wanted to mention that. Well, I know you also have 
um, some stats that you wanted to get into for another one of the most commonly talked about players on this podcast. And rightfully so. I know you have some Acuna stuff. So what did you have on him that you wanted to get to? Yeah, so it is time to talk about... Um, it is time to start talking about 60 stolen bases, which he is very close to. He's at 53. And start talking about 30 homers along with that, which he's also close to. He has 25. So he would be the first ever player to have 30 homers and 60 stolen bases in a single season. Just think about that. And I know I went on this rant on uh, Buster Olney's podcast on Monday. There are a lot of people out there, not um, not analysts, not people who work in the sport like us, but the very all-important uh, fan analysts out there on the Twitter airwaves and what have you who are trying to diminish the achievements of guys like Corman Carroll, Bobby Witt Jr., and Acuna this year, saying, oh, they're bigger bases, oh, they're new rules, these stolen bases don't matter. Two things. One, they're playing the game that was given to them. In fact, they're showing proof of concept that these roles would help encourage more stolen bases and that it would be very exciting for the game. And two, it's not the bigger bases, it's the disengagement rules. Everyone says bigger bases. Bigger bases were to avoid injuries, not to make more stolen bases. And it bothers me when people don't even blame the right thing. If they're going to blame it. So out of my system, we're good now. But again, he's playing the game. He has been given. And this is the player who, in spring training two years ago, the year he ended up getting injured, I believe he was talking about going 50-50. This is not a player who is only stealing bases because of the current rules. This is the guy who already has the 30-30 season. We knew he would have more at some point in his career. It's fun to see. And then I sort of wish, not wish, but because we kept thinking about what could the trade deadline mean for so many things, and if Shohei Otani would have been moved to the National League, what on earth would that mean for so many reasons like Acuna's been amazing does he just have to like take a seat and be like oh by the way this guy just joined our league so now I definitely can't win an MVP award I just like it would have been interesting to see how it all worked out but also grateful that it didn't work out the way that it did because Acuna does deserve this ridiculous attention that he has right now because when you're scrolling on his page and you see 53 stolen bases on there it's just, it seems wrong. Like, that just doesn't seem like a number that should be done in a single season, let alone on August 8th. And so I want, it's sort of like the home run chase for me um, of when you were tuning in to watch Aaron Judge every single day and now you're doing it with Shohei Otani and I desperately want Otani to break it because it's just like, how much cooler does it get than a pitcher just setting this record it doesn't get cooler and so but now I'm like okay I want Acuna to just keep going swipe another bag swipe another one do another one I want to see a number that we've never seen before there's a ridiculous number that we haven't seen in a while and um it's really I think a testament to where the game is right now of how many players are doing different things that are so exciting to keep track of I think that the young talent coming up and has been up for now a couple years, it just shows how good of a spot this game is in right now. Absolutely. And I do want to give a little more context to Acuna. So the most stolen bases in this season for anyone with 30 homers, it's 52 by Barry Bonds in 1990. So again, to the point... 
I know. Wow. <laughs> when you go on these Homer and Solon base lists, you get a lot of both Barry and Bobby, which is awesome to me. Oh, of course. I guess and it's then, as good as it gets whenever you have anybody then, with the same last name. Exactly. And then uh, most home runs with at least 60 stolen bases is Ricky Henderson with 28 in 1986 and 1990. So those are quote-unquote, the closest anyone has come. And there's one other uh, player I want to shout out, mention here, which is Freddie Freeman is having a 2021 Vlad Jr. season, as in a season that in any other year, in any other league, in Vlad's case, if not for Otani that year, in Freeman's case, if not for Acuna, would be hands down MVP. He is hitting 340. He is slugging 595. He leads the National League in OPS plus and total bases. He has 40 doubles to lead the major 23 home runs. I watch every game. He has multiple hits in, like, every game, it feels like. He is so good year in and year out. Everything he is doing is his best in a full season. We know he won MVP in 2020, but that was 60 games. He's played 111, and he is doing things he has never done in this quantity of games. He is so good. His chase rate is the best it's ever been. This is a player who has played 14 seasons and has always been good. And he is seeing the ball and seeing the zone better than he ever has before. He's going to finish second, of course, but he's having an amazing year. Well, I think this is a good transition into getting into our favorite segment of the week of all of our favorite things about baseball over the last few days. So let's take a quick break, think about our moments, and we, when we come back, we will discuss all of them. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm Mandy, that's Sarah. And of course, as always, we have our wonderful producer, Alana Schreiber, joining us for our favorite segment of the week, where we each give our favorite moments from baseball over the last few days. So, Alana, would you like to start us off with your favorite moment? I've been waiting all weekend to tell you guys this. So, okay, last week was not a great week to be a Mets fan. I was in Kansas City with my dad for that insane balk-off game. But more importantly, we were actually in Kansas City to see the Negro League Baseball Museum. It's such an incredible museum. And the president, Bob Kendrick, is this just amazing human encyclopedia of Negro League history. And I worked at a couple different NPR stations across the country. And every time I just call him up and ask for history in that state. And he's like, oh, Colorado, Satchel Paige joined the House of David Orthodox team and integrated the Denver Post Tournament. Oh, you're in Louisiana. Tony Stone, one of three women in the Negro Leagues, played for the New Orleans Creoles. Like, he just has all of these amazing stories. So I'm at the museum with my dad, and who's also just a baseball encyclopedia human. And we're just talking to Bob in the lobby. And then some guy walks out of the museum wearing his Baseball is the Best and ALS shirt. Yay! It was awesome! And I was like, oh my god, I know Sarah Langs. She's my friend. This is awesome. 
And he was like, that's so cool. I love her stats. And then some other guy piped up and he's like, I also have a baseball is the best shirt. And I just ordered my Sarah Lang star. Oh my gosh. Yes. It was so amazing. And then I'm at the airport on my way home and I see another guy wearing a baseball is the best shirt. And I go up to him and I'm like, I know Sarah, she's amazing. And he's like, that is so cool. Tell her I say hi. So Shay from the airport says hello. He got an orange <laughs> shirt because he's a Mets fan. It was so amazing to be both at the Negro League Baseball Museum, this incredible landmark of baseball history, and to also just be at the Kansas City airport and see people wearing your shirt. I think it just really, again, is such a great reminder of how much you mean to this game. Oh my gosh. So we were talking beforehand, uh, before we came on to record the segment, about how we always learn something when you give yours, Alana. I did <laughs> not expect to be tearing up and feeling so overwhelmed by it, but thank you. That is amazing. I, I can't believe that. I love anyone talking about a Lang star because it's my favorite thing about my house right now. Every night when I come, I, I get home so late after these games. I'm pulling up at midnight. My husband can't stay awake past like 8.02. So he's already asleep on the couch every single night. He never has the outdoor lights on for me to come home. So I come home to this pitch black house, but I'm always now having that star on my front porch. It's on a bench on the front porch and it's constantly plugged in. So I always get so excited coming around the corner because the star is so bright because my husband doesn't have any other lights on. So it really stands out even more. And I come around the corner and it makes me so happy every time. So I'm so excited every time, anytime people tweet at me saying they got their stars. I love the star so much. And I think it's such a great idea. So that makes me happy, like even happier than the shirts. Cause I'm like, yay, more stars. Oh my gosh. Yeah, well, my sister actually got a star recently, and she works at the U.S. Capitol, so she brought it into work. So there is now officially a Lang star at the U.S. Oh Capitol building. Now I'm learning. See, Sarah, this is the part where we learn. The Capitol has a Lang star. We are learning. Oh, my goodness. Thank <laughs> okay, you well, to her. Please tell her that. It's going to be hard to transition out of that, but Sarah, go ahead and try to figure out what you're going to say now after all of all of that emotional dump on top of you. <laughs> I'm just going to try to power through, but <laughs> there was this amazing moment with Bryce Harper over the weekend. Uh, Taryn Hatcher, who is a silent reporter and host for NBC Sports Philadelphia, tweeted about this and Basically, there were some fans kind of near the field during the game. Maybe it was a pregame. Uh, I'm sorry, before the game. Maybe it was a season ticket holder thing. I'm not sure. But there was this little kid, seven-year-old Caleb. And he was sitting on the tarp. And he was crying because he got separated from his brothers. And Bryce Harper saw this and went up to him. And as Terrence said, he went into dad mode, calming him down, saying, let's go find your brothers. Come on, it'll be okay. So then he reunited them, brought them over. And she has a video of both him calming him down and bringing over to the brothers. And then, of course, the green ending is that in the second video, you see them take a selfie together. And Taryn got that selfie from uh, Caleb's grandmother, Diane. And there's these three adorable little brothers with the biggest smiles you've ever seen. And then Bryce Harper. And again, you know, players do great things for kids, for fans all the time. No question, signing, talking before the game. But he went out of his way to make sure this little kid stopped crying, got him back to his family. And I mean, that is the holiday card. It is August 5th when this happened, but there was no question 
That's the holiday card for the next 10 years for this family. And it was just so adorable because, again, we think of players as who they're on the field. Bryce Harper has two young kids, so for him to go into that dad mode, to be who he is when he's not at Citizens Bank Park, it's just so humanizing, and I hope it really shows people who these players are beyond being, you know, guys who hit home runs or knew whatever it is that they do on the field. That was I. That was going to be mine because I thought it was amazing. I do. I did have a close second, so I have one to go to. But uh, it was as good as it got, and it always is funny to me. Like my my mom will send me things on Instagram randomly, um, mostly just of other stuff, whether it be cute babies because we all know the way to my heart, or um, food recipes or different things. But then randomly there will be baseball ones that get mixed in there, and those are it's always funny to see what catches her eye when it comes to baseball things and when she sent me that one it was just after uh-huh. you told me to watch it because it was also the day of the brawl and you were like um here's the anti-brawl and you can see the exact opposite going on today it was so heartwarming i loved every second of it and it was just so sweet and baseball always benefits to see those sweet moments so um i do have another sweet moment though that i wanted for my at least my backup if I didn't get that one. And I had seen this because of you on Twitter. I saw that you posted out the a screenshot of a broadcast um, for the Reds-Marlins game. And this sweet old woman is just sitting in the stands with a sign that says 91 years young. My first game here for number 19, which is, of course, Joey Votto. And she's decked out in her red. She's sitting there. She's taking it all in. One, first of all, it's awesome that she's able to get to a game. If she's that diehard of a fan that she's going out at 91 years old and she's getting there, it shows that this would have been a long-awaited highly anticipated thing for her to do in her lifetime. So it already makes my heart so warm to see the fact that she was able to do this in her lifetime because clearly it's something that she would have had on the bucket list type of thing. On top of it, he hit a home run. And that's just as poetic as it gets. This, If it doesn't warm your heart, I don't know what's wrong with you because it's just so stinking sweet for this woman to not only get the experience, to say that she's there for Votto, for Votto to deliver. So all of that is enough. And then it's like a complete triple down. He tweets about it. And it's just like, it doesn't get much better. He retweets the video that Bally Sports Cincinnati had posted um, from their broadcast of showing her in the stands with her sign. And he quote tweeted it and said, thank you for coming to the game tonight and supporting us. And it's just like, I'm sure this lady's not on Twitter. I'm sure she's probably not. And I hate, I'm not trying to stereotype, but I'm just saying probably odds are that she wouldn't be. If she is, that is one (laughs) really cool 91 year old. But you know that message is getting back to her somehow, some way, whether it be family, the news, I'm sure will be picking it up in that area. Um, And Joey Votto has just always been known to be this type of a guy. Um, And it's just, it's so nice. As much as you hear great stuff, it never gets old to hear more great stuff about people. And it just re-solidifies in your brain, like, he is what everyone thinks he is. Um, And so just to have that whole moment and then for him to tweet it out and say, look, thank you for doing coming. This is so sweet type of deal. Oh, it doesn't get better for me. I thought that was amazing. It was so good. And as you said, you told it perfectly. It was already amazing that she was there and that he hollered. And the fact that he saw it post-game, because he is as online as we all are, right? And then he decided to acknowledge it. That's what made it so perfect. But it would have been amazing even without that. So just so, so cool. And I love that we covered from seven-year-old Caleb to 91-year-old, yes. that woman. That's awesome. 
Oh my gosh, it's so great. Well, that'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or you have any suggestions for us at all, please leave us a rating and a review. Thank you as always for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast and we'll see you next week.